Today we are going to talk about another parable, and it's the parable of the treasure, which is one of my favoritist parables. The reason why I like it is because I think it's the most misunderstood parable in all of the Bible. And so whenever I share what I think the correct interpretation is, I always get either one of two responses, either one, lights go on and say, oh, I like that so much better, or two, they hate me afterwards. And so um, today I want to tell you why I think it's the most misunderstood parable in all the Bible, and I want to back that up with solid evidence. But before I do, let's just read the parable, shall we? Let's look at it. Matthew 13, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the parable. That's, it's, the whole, it's only one verse long, and I believe it's the most misunderstood parable in all the Bible. So let me explain to you why, okay? Can I tell you why real quickly? First of all, this parable is found in Matthew 13, verses 44. So that's 44 verses in to Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, verse 1, Jesus begins his parabolic ministry. That's where he starts telling parables in 13, verse 1. So Matthew 13 is basically the sermon of parables. And Every single parable have the same three elements in them. There's an element of a field, there's a seed or something that gets buried, and then there's a main character or an active agent who's planting the seed or or, or walking in the field. Just let me quickly go through all five because it's important. It's the context is important, right? So this parable comes number six, I think after Jesus' parable. So let's look at the first couple. The first parable is called the parable of the sower. Jesus says a man is walking in a field to sow seeds, and he sows some along the path, some on rocky places, some where there's weeds, and then some, of course, where there's going to be good fruit, good soil. And Jesus tells us essentially in this parable that the field, this is important, is the world, and that the seed that he plants is the kingdom, or more specifically, the message about the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, that when different people in the world hear it, they respond differently. Some have a hard heart, some have a shallow heart, some have a divided heart, and some have a very open heart, and they bear fruit. We know that the main character is either Jesus or God the Father who's planting that seed or that message of the kingdom. Immediately following that parable, Jesus tells another parable called the parable of the seed. And in that parable, the sower, again, sows the seed in the field, which is the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, and then the sower goes to sleep. He goes to bed because that's all he needs to do. And the seed grows automatically, which means the kingdom of God is in the world and it grows automatically of its own self. Then Jesus tells a third parable. This is the parable of the weeds. And Jesus says that there is a field The field is the world, that the seed is the children of the kingdom, the offspring of the kingdom, and that the master of that field is the Son of Man, which is Jesus Christ himself. One more parable. Parable number four is the mustard seed. And Jesus says, again, there's a field, or in Mark it's called a garden, and that in that field, the world, or garden, a seed is planted. It's the kingdom of God, and the seed starts off small like a mustard seed, and it grows really big and takes over the whole garden or takes over the whole world, so much so that birds can fly in and squirrels can live in the branches of this tree. And the big idea is that the kingdom of God is going to start small. It's in the world already. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. One day it take over the whole world, and it's inviting all the riffraff that people don't normally invite into their gardens like birds and squirrels so it's open to everyone so there's and then there's the parable of the yeast which follows that one it's the same exact thing as the parable of the mustard seed small yeast takes over the whole lump of bread 
So there it is. This is the important part. I know that was a lot, but here's what I wanted to drive home. Every stinking parable that Jesus has told so far has three elements, and they're all the same. The field represents the world. The seed represents the kingdom of God or the message about the kingdom of God or the children of the kingdom of God. And the main character or the active agent is always Jesus, or you could, if you wanted to, say it was God the Father. So here's what's interesting. Why is it then that when we get to the sixth parable that Jesus tells, in that same line of thinking, do we change all the metaphors and the main characters around? The parable of the hidden treasure is about a treasure that is buried in a field that a man finds. But what we typically do is we take the main character, who has always been Jesus so far, and we swap him out for you-know-who, me and you, mankind. We swap Jesus out and make the main character us. We're the main character. But think about what that does to our parable. If the field is still the world and the buried thing is still the kingdom of God, how can we say that human beings are supposed to purchase the world? Does the Bible say that anywhere? You should, in fact, the Bible actually says to forsake the world, right? Not purchase the world. And not only that, but how much does the world cost? If I go and sell all that I own, would I be able to afford to buy the world? No. And then secondly, if the buried thing is still the kingdom of God, then how could we say that the Bible encourages human beings to purchase the kingdom of God? And then what we sometimes hear, you probably have heard this before, is we swap out that metaphor entirely, and the treasure is not the kingdom of God, but it's Jesus, or it's our salvation. And again, how does the Bible ever encourage human beings to purchase Jesus or to purchase your salvation? It sounds awfully heretical, doesn't it? So you see this fast shuffle of metaphors and characters right in the middle of Jesus's parabolic sermon. It messes things up so that we have to interpret this parable as a prescriptive parable. That means that Jesus is giving you a prescription. Here's what you need to do and call me in the morning. You need to go sell all you have, and then you can inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it typically gets taught as. That's why I think it's the most misunderstood parable. And so what I typically hear at the end of a sermon like that is a question that sounds much like this. How much is it worth to you? How much is it worth to you? Have you really given it all? Have you really laid it all on the line? Have you really gone all in for Jesus? And what usually comes after this question, tell me if I'm wrong, is some sort of application that sounds like you need to try harder and do better and be gooder and you don't value it enough and so you need to try harder about valuing it more. Now, let me, let me pause here real quick and say this. That might not be a bad sermon. Maybe we should stop, take some stock checking and see if we really do value the kingdom of God or Jesus or your salvation. Do I really value it? Is it really a priority in my life? And chances are, if we did do that, I think we would all have the same answer, wouldn't we? Yeah, not, not enough. I need to do better. <laughs> I need to value it more. I could do better. But fortunately, that's not what this parable is about at all. At all. It's the opposite, in fact. Ray Steadman, an author, he says this. The usual interpretation of this parable is that Christ is the hidden treasure, and as we grow through life, we are the people who someday discover him. Then it is up to us to sell all that we have, give it all up, and buy him at any cost. But I submit to you that that is false, and obviously so. Never anywhere in Scripture is salvation ever offered to us as something we ever have to buy or even can buy. 
another author, C.I. Schofield, the interpretation of the parable of the treasure, which makes the buyer of the field to be a sinner who is seeking Christ, has no warrant in the parable itself. The field is defined by Jesus in verse 38 to be the world. Therefore, the seeking sinner does not buy, but forsakes the world. Furthermore, the sinner has nothing to sell, nor is Christ for sale, nor is Christ hidden in some field, nor having found Christ does the sinner then go hide him again in that field. You see the point? At all points in this parable, it breaks down. It can't be, it just can't be. It's the most misunderstood parable, and that translation is just plain wrong. It can't be that way. But it's the most interpreted way, by far. That's what you will mostly hear. So watch this. I want to show you something. What happens when we put all the metaphors and all the characters back in their rightful place? What happens when we swap human beings out for the main character that it should be and put Jesus in his rightful place? Jesus is the main character of this story, as he has been the main character of all the stories. How can we say that Jesus himself has purchased the world? And then (laughs) the lights come on, right? Aha! Jesus has purchased the world, right? It was with his blood that he bought the world. In fact, I can think of hundreds of verses in the Bible that say Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Or perhaps another verse in uh, uh, Colossians that says God purchased our freedom with his blood and has forgiven all of our sins. Hey, I've got another one for you. 1 Corinthians, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. There are many verses in the Bible that suggest that Jesus bought the world. He purchased the world. He loves the world and he loves you and he purchased you with his own blood. Here, here's another one. What about the kingdom of God? How can it be said that Jesus has come into the world, found something, and then hid it in the world again and said, I'll be back for it? The lights are coming on again, and that's true of the church. He found us. He hid us in this world amongst the thorns and amongst the weeds, right? And we are here, and he has promised us he's going to come back again. In fact, I've got a Bible verse for you. It says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Jesus is promising, I'm coming back to the world. I'm coming back to get you and to save you. And so as you can see, if we put all the characters and all the metaphors in their right place the way they've been throughout the whole chapter, it makes good sense, doesn't it? Makes real good sense. So instead of asking this silly question, how much is it worth to you? Instead of asking that question, maybe what we should really do is ask this question, just simply, how much is it worth? Because you see, this isn't a prescriptive parable where Jesus is saying, this is what you need to do to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. First, it's going to be a message that people are going to have a hard time hearing. Secondly, it's going to grow automatically without any of your help. Thirdly, it's going to start off small and it's going to grow really, really, really big. Fourthly, it's going to grow right amongst weeds and right about you know, weeds that look just like the wheat until the end of the harvest. And thirdly, it's going to be extremely valuable. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. And so he's asking, how much is it worth to God? Or another way of saying it is, how much is the world worth to God? Does God love the world? Uh Uh-oh, I got another Bible verse. Here comes my friends. God loves the world so much, doesn't he? John 3, 16, that he gave his one and only son. And so that is why I think that this parable is the most misunderstood parable. But if you understand it correctly, it just makes a lot of sense. Someone say amen. So that's the parable of the treasure. But I want to be honest with you, real honest. There are other ways to interpret it, okay? I just gave you the wrong way and what I think is the right way. But there's two other ways too. Some people say that the treasure is the church. You might hear this. Or some people say the treasure is Israel. 
You might hear that. Let me explain those. If you want to make the, the treasure Israel, you might quote some passages in the first four books of the Bible, like Deuteronomy and Exodus. Here's, here's one in Exodus. It says, If you will indeed obey my voice, says God, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see that? So in essentially, you see a lot of parallels there. God bought the world. He owns the world. The world is mine, and you are my treasured possession in the world to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so people say the, the treasure that's hidden in the world is Israel, the, the select few of, Israel, you know, of Israel's Jews who are still living in the world. And then, of course, there are some people who say, no, it's not Israel, it's the church. Well, why would you say that? Well, because the New Testament takes that same verse and translates it into New, New Testament-ish, like, um, phrases. So the New Testament, for instance, in 1 Peter, uses those same terminology and says, but you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people acquired for a treasured possession, so that you may tell of his virtues of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there are tons of verses in Ephesians and Colossians that say that Jesus has purchased the church with his blood and he's put us into this world to be ambassadors. And so as you can see, it could be Israel, it could be the church. And I don't think it's a stretch that if it's the church, then that's you. So honestly speaking, I don't have a problem with any of those three translations. If it's the Israel, cool, I'd like to learn more about Israel. If it's the church, hey, I, I could totally roll with that and think, in fact, I think that's the best interpretation. It's the church. But thirdly, just to think of it as you, the children of the kingdom, the children of the world who God loves so much, I think that's fine too. But I don't think it's fine for you to switch the metaphors and say, Jesus is the treasure and you're the treasure hunter. Nope, you can't do that. Did you notice it? In all four of the translations that I shared with you just now, the first one is Jesus is the treasure and you're the treasure hunter, but all the other three is you are the treasure, the church is the treasure, Israel is the treasure, and Jesus is the treasure hunter. Do you see that? So the majority of the correct interpretations would mean keeping the metaphors the same. It's only the wrong interpretation that changes all the metaphors. And unfortunately, it's the wrong interpretation that continues to get preached and taught all the time. Do you see the... This is big. This is big. This is huge. We need to correct some things. So here it is. The field is the world. The seed or the buried thing is the kingdom of God, and the main character is Jesus. Let me tell you what that does to our parable. You're not the treasure hunter. You're the hunted. <laughs> You're not the main character. Jesus is the main character. And what I think we tend to do is in our attempt to put ourselves in the parable, we miss the point entirely and we put ourselves as the main character when really we should put ourselves as the treasure. You are God's treasure. Think about that. You're his treasure. You might not feel comfortable hearing that, but it's what the Bible teaches over and over again. You're not the hunter, you're the hunted. He's after you one way or another. He's going to get you, get you, get you. You're the apple of his eye. You're, the, you're the, the diamond in the rough. You're his treasured possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of calling called out for his purposes. It's a beautiful, God loves you that much. It's not you need to love God more and you need to value God more. It's God values you more than you've ever realized. That's why we sing this song, which I like a lot, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And by the way, this rolls nicely into Jesus's seventh parable. <laughs> he tells another one right after the parable of the treasure 
that is exactly the same thing, and it's called the pearl of great price. I'm sure you've heard of this parable. And again, it's the same exact parable, but just with a little difference. Let me just read it to you real quick. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you see, it's the same thing, right? It's the same parable. And the only difference is it's not a treasure, but now it's a pearl. There's actually one more difference. In the first parable, it seems as if the treasure, well, it seems as if the person who was shopping for a field and he stumbled upon the treasure. Doesn't it seem like that? So in the first one, he stumbles on it. But in the second one, he's searching for it, right? He's a merchant looking for a pearl. He's looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. And then when he finds it, hooray, I found it. Now I'm, I want to buy this. And he buys it. And so what sometimes gets done with this parable is we say, Jesus, you need to search for him. You need to, you need to study harder. You need to seek after him more in your life. But the only problem with that is, again, the rest of the Bible. Because the rest of the Bible says you can't seek after him. He's not one that you could grope after. He's, in fact, it's the actual opposite. The Bible says none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. That's what the Bible says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. So it's not try harder, seek more, study your Bible, read the King James only, journal about it. It's not try harder, study and find God. It's God is looking for you. Isn't that what the Bible says? That's what the gospel is, and that's what Jesus says in Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Again, you're not the hunter. He's the hunter. You're the one who's being hunted. (laughs) Uh, There's another author, A.W. Pink. He shares my same frustrations with the fact that we totally get this backwards all the time. Listen to what he says. He says, the general conception of its meaning is this. That means this is the way people generally think of it. Christianity is likened to one who earnestly desires and diligently sought salvation. Ultimately, his efforts were rewarded by his finding Christ, the pearl of great price. And having found him, as presented in the gospel, the sinner sold all that he had. That is to say, he forsook all that the flesh held dear. He abandoned his worldly companions, and he surrendered his will, and he dedicated his life to God. And in that way, he secured his salvation. Good for that man. Pink goes on to say, the awful thing, and I I agree with him, this is awful. The awful thing is that this interpretation is the one which substantially is given out almost everywhere throughout Christendom today. And that was written a long time ago, by the way, and it's still true today, isn't it? So it's important that we get this right. You are not the hunter, you are the hunted. This is about God's love for you. You are the treasure. You are the pearl of great price. You are the children of the kingdom, and he has promised to come back for you, and you can count on that promise. In fact, that's what the gospel is, right? Let me just say this real quick. The gospel is good news. It's good news that God loves you and is pursuing you. It's not bad news that you need to love God more, and you know what? You can't. Because let's just be honest. Can we love him more? Maybe. Maybe. But can we love him enough? No. Can we sacrifice some things to show our love for God? Sure you can. Can you sacrifice enough to earn your salvation? Never. So it just doesn't make any sense at all to think of the parable that way. This is what the Bible says the gospel is. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's not works. It's not try harder. It's not sell all you have. It's by grace. Again, in Romans 11 says, but if it is by grace, then it is no longer 
on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. I don't know about you, but is this good news? So I want to give an illustration that my wife gave me today, because that's why she's my wife. As I was sharing this with her, we were talking also quite a bit about the fact that the past nine weeks have been difficult for us, um, because Kelly went back to school to teach for full-time for nine weeks as a, as a full-time substitute. And so that means that she was at work five days a week, and then we'd have our activities in the evening, of course, you know, community groups and such like that. And then Friday night, we always had something, some sort of church planting ministry, like a party at my house or a party at your house or something going on. And then we'd have church Saturday night. Then we typically have something after church Saturday night. Then we'd have church Sunday morning, and we typically have something after church Sunday afternoon. And then sometimes we have something Sunday night even, and then we go back to work on Monday. And that continued for nine straight weeks, block parties, NFL draft parties, game nights, uh, Cardinals parties, birthday parties, uh, everything, right? All the time. So my wife's working full-time, and then the weekend is full-time for both of us. And um, you tack on the fact that Hadessa was hospitalized twice in those nine weeks. We were in the hospital for three, day, two days. It just, oh man, it got crazy. It got, and I was losing my mind and I was getting frustrated. And then what I, typically happens is I start to get angry and say things that I shouldn't say. And um, the thing that would really frustrate me is the house would become a mess. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? An unbelievable mess. And with three kids, it's hard to keep it clean. Even if you clean it, you're like, I cleaned it. And then you turn around, it's like, what happened? It's a mess again. And, and one of my biggest pet peeves is the kitchen island. We have a large kitchen island in our kitchen, and I want nothing on it. Not, not one thing on that island, okay? Nothing. It's got to be pure and clean and, 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 and sanitized. But what happens is, especially on a weekend when you're running and you're going to this party and you come back, you throw your bags on there, you throw the mail on there, you know what I mean? You throw your kids on there. And then you go to another party and you come back and they throw more bags, more coats, more clothes. And then by the time Monday comes, that you can't even see the island anymore. It's covered with everything. It takes literally a half of a day. Mondays are supposed to be kind of my day to decompress. It's the day that I'm sorting through all this junk, and I would just get mad. And then finally, my wife said to me, I feel like you're mad at me all the time. I feel like I can't do anything right. I feel like you're expecting me to like take a day off or something. And, and, and I'm stressed too, and this is, this is hard for us. And, and I want you to hear this. I'm not... I don't want a pity party, okay? Because you guys have life that's lives that are far worse than ours. I know it. I know you. I know that you're just as much busy. You're going, going, going. What I'm trying to say is that that pressure put pressure on our marriage. And at that point, my wife didn't feel loved by me. She didn't feel like I treasured her. She felt like I exasperated her, that I put, I put pressure on her and, and expected her to not put things on the island or expected her to you know, clean, do the laundry faster or something like that. And she started to tell me, I don't, it just makes me feel exasperated. It's interesting because I'm also studying a lot of books about raising your children because I'm, getting, I'm losing my mind with some, some of them. And, and the same thing, the quote the Bible verse that says, do not exasperate your children. What that means is don't put such high expectations on them that you're always saying, you can do better, stop that, do this better, stop, you know what I mean? And then you exasperate them, and they don't, they don't feel like they can ever do better, right? Just like my wife was saying, I could, you want me to clean the island, but what am I supposed to do? Get up at 4 in the morning before work, and then get, I just, I give up. And what I wanted to say is marriage in the Bible and children raising in the Bible is a picture of the gospel, is a picture of how much God loves us and how God treats us. And what I learned from that is that, tell me if I'm right, I think we view God like that most of the time. Not that he treasures us, but that he exasperates us. He's pressing down on us, you need to do better. When you mowed that grass, you missed a, missed a spot. You know what I mean? Am I right? You could pray more, but you don't. You don't love me. 
like I love you. What kind of loving father would say that to their kids? God doesn't say that to us, but we always think of him that way. And that's why I think it's important to understand the real meaning of this parable. And once you understand that God loves you, it changes everything. If I just told my wife, honey, I love you, you're my treasure, we're going to get through this. Don't you worry about the island. I'll get a cleaning lady. You know what I mean? Whatever. If I, if I did that, then she would feel loved and treasured. And that changes. Attitude is everything, isn't it? All right, so let me conclude. In conclusion, these parables are about the kingdom of God. It is in this world, hidden, growing, slowly, automatically, and it is very, very valuable. So valuable, in fact, that God sent his one and only son. So valuable that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he gladly, with joy, gave all that he had in order to come to this world for the distinct purpose to seek and to save you, the lost. And finding you in this world, lost, he gladly with the joy set before him, endured the cross to purchase you as his treasured possession. And he is good for his promise that one day he's coming back for you.